for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jamie O'Donoghue, and today we're going to be reading Genesis 26, verses 23 through 25. And from there, Isaac went up to Beersheba, and that night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And there he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, as we encounter your word, our lives are changed. And just as Isaac made his home in the place where you met him, Father, I pray that you would help us to linger and make our home in your presence. And Father, for Peter today, I pray that your spirit empowers him to speak the words that you would want us to hear. And as you open the scriptures to our hearts, I pray that our hearts are burning with fire within us. In your holy son's name we pray. Cornerstone. So I, uh, my very first job in ministry after seminary was at the church where I grew up, which was a wonderful experience in a lot of ways. It was also a really weird experience in a lot of ways because people would come up to me for probably about the first year I was there and say, oh, we remember you when you were this high. And I would be sitting there in my inner monologue thinking, I don't have a clue who you are. Could you please introduce yourself like a normal person? And Cornerstone, he were to say, I remember you when you were like this high, um, because I've known John for so long, and I heard stories about Cornerstone before you were ever here. And, uh, and so in, th- in the you know, interest of introducing myself like a normal person, my name is, is Peter White. And uh, um, I also had this experience several years ago when I was working on staff for the Wesley Foundation at Oklahoma State. And uh, I remember texting John to say, hey, one of my students is, is running around campus in a Cornerstone Tulsa shirt. I thought you should know. And, uh, and that person was Nina, and uh, she was working on staff for us at the time there. So with all of that in mind, it is such a gift and a privilege to be with you this morning and to open God's word with you. Um, let's pray. Oh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God. Amen. Hear the words of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths, and ask where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. Isn't that tragic? Isn't that gut-wrenching? And yet, isn't that such a, a picture-perfect snapshot of the, uh, the human condition to, to walk away from God's rest? Let's turn again in our Bibles to uh, Genesis 26, this passage that we were just looking at. 
because I, I, I want to talk about this guy, Isaac. We're actually in, in the stories of these patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are great, 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 great grandpas of the faith. These ancestors of Jesus. And we see in the book of Genesis, there, that, there are three promises across three generations to these families. And this is the second of three. And actually what we read this morning was the second time that God comes and speaks to Isaac. And let's actually back up then to the very beginning of this chapter, chapter 26. And this is um, because there's a first time that God speaks to Isaac. And chapter 26 is really unique in the sense that this is the only chapter in Genesis that focuses exclusively on Isaac. The rest, we get Isaac in combination with, with Abraham because he's the child of promise, and then later we get Isaac with Jacob because Jacob is swindling himself out of the, his firstborn birthright. But in chapter 26, it's just Isaac. And one thing that's really interesting to notice in these promises that God is giving to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, if you line them up side by side, there's, there's some strong similarities and, and some, some threads that run through all of them. And yet there are some very distinct differences too. If we look at the story of Abraham and the way that Abraham responds to God, there's a lot of waiting. God promises a son, and then Abraham waits and waits and waits. And there is angst, and there is conflict, and there is Hagar and Ishmael, and there is mess and conflict. And then when we get to Jacob, Jacob is a guy who just cannot get out of his own way. There is struggle and there is scheming, and there is literal wrestling with God about this promise. And yet with Isaac, there's something wholly different than either of these other two stories. Let's see if you can see what it is. So in chapter 26, it says, Now there was a famine in the land. A famine. It was a season of regional crisis. Does that feel familiar at all? Anybody feel crisis? The world is turned upside down. People are dying. The world is disrupted, and we can't do what we're doing, and we are totally insecure about what happens next. There's a famine in the land, and besides the previous famine, in Abraham's time. So it's not the first time that life has been so uncertain. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar, and the Lord appeared to Isaac. Because it's only in famine, in disruption, and in crisis it's only the real world of all of this messed up stuff that God appears to us, right? And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, don't go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you. The gospel words right there. I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all of these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the, as the stars in the sky, and will give them all these lands, and through your offspring, hear Jesus in that, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him in keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. And if we skip down then to verse 12, it says, Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold, because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. 
What do you notice in this? There's zero conflict. It's so simple. God says, I'm going to bless you, and he does. And Isaac receives it. And in fact, the very next story, as it continues, when we get this encounter that was just read to us, the king Abimelech comes to Isaac and says, you're so wealthy, we need to make a pact, an agreement, a covenant, because we need to be on the same team. Because whoever, whatever God you have is a good one, and I, I want to be on that team too. I am so struck by these characters of the Old Testament, so many of them. Because I don't know about you, but I grew up here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, born in a Christian family, went to church every single week. I went to ORU, and then I went to seminary, and then I got a paycheck and benefits for being a professional Christian. I have been surrounded my entire life by every prop of Christian culture that you can imagine. Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, none of that stuff. No Spotify playlists of worship music, no podcast sermons to listen to, no conferences to go to and get inspired by, no mission trips to go on, no Bible to even read. What Isaac knows about God is just a couple of stories that his dad told him, and maybe one really traumatic scene at an altar. And this is what Isaac knows about God, and he hears from God, and he says, all right, sure, sign me up. Isn't there such beauty in that simplicity to encounter God and receive? Isn't that powerful? I wonder if this is why then Isaac is named 23 times in the New Testament. I mean, we don't, I mean, he gets one little chapter here in Genesis, and yet he's talked about all over the pages of the gospel. He's one of the ancestors of Jesus. It is so simple to encounter God. The psalmist, I think, really captures this, this spirit of, of Isaac and this life that Isaac leads in uh, Psalm 37. I want to I read you a portion of this. But, but imagine this world. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. The meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, in times of pandemic, they will not wither. And in the days of famine, like in Isaac's day, they will enjoy plenty. Hope in the Lord. Keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. Consider the blameless and observe the upright. A future awaits those who seek peace. This is God's vision, I think, not just for Isaac. I think it's for us. I think it's for the whole entire world. I think this is God's thesis statement for the renewal of all things. That God is a God who wants to encounter us and meet us where we are so that he can do this in the whole world. Well, so what? It's a nice Sunday school story, isn't it? Is it okay if I share with you um, just a personal story of my encounter with God? Um, As I kind of hinted at, like, I've spent a lot of time in church in my life, but the times that I've had an encounter with God that was like, you know, kind of 
almost field of dreams-ish, I can count on one hand. Maybe, maybe just a couple of fingers. Um, and it was a couple years ago. And my life over the last five years has felt kind of like following breadcrumbs with God. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before with God, but like he doesn't ever show the entire plan from beginning to end. It's just kind of like, well, there's this step, and then this step, and then this step. I had uh, I'd proposed a plan to the, and pitched it to the denomination about a, a church plant, kind of on the north end of downtown, and it was received with a resounding, eh. And then I was, I was released from the, the church job I was at in a way that was really disappointing and confusing. And so my wife and I were kind of, not exactly spiraling, but just kind of like, what are we, what are we doing? Why are we here? And we, we found ourselves just digging our heels in with this prayer of, God, where are you at work? Just where are you at work? Because that, that's the only place we want to be. So breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs. We sold our house in Midtown and moved to a neighborhood north of downtown because we just had this, this gut, you know, like, I think God's at work here in this place. And then breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs. I, I get offered this job at Jackie Cooper Imports. Breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs. Find ourselves as an invited guest to the fundraising banquet for a nonprofit called Crossover Community Impact. Now, Crossover, um, they have been doing work in North Tulsa uh, through, uh, with the kind of philosophy of Christian community development to uh, transform the reputation of North Tulsa. They've been at it for over 10 years. They have a health clinic. They have a school for boys, uh, sixth grade to 10th grade. They're expanding each year. They do after-school programs at Hawthorne Elementary. They do sports programs for kids. And they have a, a development company that rehabs houses and resells them and keeps them affordable in North Tulsa. Um, they have a sister church called uh, Crossover Bible Church that, that meets in the Maybe Center at 30th Street North in MLK. And so my wife and I are sitting there, and uh, there's this, this statistic that flashes on the screen that says in 2015, across all T Tulsa Public High Schools, there are only 22 young African-American men who graduated college-ready meaning they had a composite ACT score of 21, at least. Only 22. Now, TPS has nine high schools across the city. Uh, all but one of them uh, are predominantly African-American in a city where only 15% of the population is African-American. So I promise this is the most complicated math that's in the sermon, but let that sink in a minute. Like, I heard that, and I just sat there, and I was like, this is not right. I mean, not in, a, like, a factual sense. Like, I'll accept that, but this is, like, this is not the world God wants. This is not the way things are supposed to be. I'm not okay with this. And I heard this audible voice say, you need to go be a part of that. And I knew for a fact it wasn't my wife sitting next to me. <clears throat> and my, my immediate reaction was like, well, what in the world does that mean? And we, we, we kind of sit there and through the presentation and the work that Crossover does. And I remember Jackie and, and I, us walking out to the car afterwards thinking and reflecting like, how is it that I have spent three quarters of my life in the city here in Tulsa and like this has never like popped up or come up? How is it that we are in settings that are not talking about this, that are not acting on this, that are not participating in making this better in any way? And then kind of the, the most cutting and biting question of all is like, if, if this is real, like, why do we stay where we're at? 
So this was my, my encounter with God. And so maybe you're asking yourself, well, how in the world did you know that was God and not just like the emotions of the moment? Well, I had been um, working exclusively as a spiritual director for a couple of years at that point in time. And just in my, my interactions with folks, like there was this clear pattern of discernment that came up again and again with folks, seeking like, what is God's will for my life? What's my next step? Where do I, you know, this church isn't working out, I need to go somewhere else. Or this job isn't working out, I need to go somewhere else. Or I need to go live some, like, how do I know God's will and hear God's voice? And I kind of stumbled into three questions that I found were really helpful in this process with folks. And they were, how is God at work? How is God showing himself to you? In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, my father is always at work. I can only do what I see the father doing. So how is God revealing himself to you? And then secondly, what does obedience look like as a result of that? God doesn't just like show up and say hi. It's like God shows up and invites you to be a part of something that God is doing. And so how do you say yes to God when God shows up? And then thirdly, what community allows you to most faithfully respond to that yes? Are there people already doing this work that God is showing you about, that you can link arms with. Because none of us are called to be lone rangers. It's, it's nothing about the Christian life is just me and Jesus. And so what, what community supports you and empowers you? So I'd been asking those questions to other people, and then all of a sudden, like, I just, I felt the burden of those questions myself. And how do I see, I clearly God is at work in some way with this, with this group and this, this group of people. And God wants me to say yes in some way, but like, what do I do about this? So I went to a trusted mentor of mine to kind of process this a little bit. Some of you, uh, I imagine, might know Dick Reed. And uh, I remember sitting down with Dick to talk about this, and for some, whatever odd reason, I fully expected him to say, you know what, we really need you on this Methodist team, like, please stick it out, and, and uh, you know, you could pioneer this work, or, you know, uh, you just kind of need to, you know, uh, be determined and have endurance and perseverance. But he didn't say anything at all like that. In fact, his response to me as I was reflecting through these things was, if that's how you see God at work, you need to go chase that. You need to go run after that. And so, uh, and so here we are. This is, this is how I've encountered God. Now there's it's kind of a parallel track to this too, where as John hinted, like I've walked into the Anglican church as well in discovering Bishop Todd Hunter and churches for the sake of others. And uh, I'm so glad to know that I'm not alone here in Oklahoma and in Tulsa, uh, doing this work. But my wife and I, um, we've been a part of Crossover Bible Church now for about two years, lead a missional team uh, at that church, um, trying to just seek God's will in this community and neighborhood all around Emerson Elementary and this north, uh, the north end of downtown and kind of where, where north downtown meets north Tulsa. And what is, what is God doing in this space and what does this mean? Well, so... I believe it's really, really important that we share stories of encounter like that because we need to be encouraged by our stories. It's, it's, that's part of how we find this community and we link up with other people that see God and hear how God is at work in similar ways. And to know that we're not alone and we're not super crazy uh, or anything like that. So there's a God who wants to encounter us. There are stories that each of us have of encounter. And I want to offer, like, there are three tools at our disposal, particularly, that I think enlarge our hearts to receive God's encounter, particularly in the Anglican tradition, as I'm finding it. That 
While none of these three things are exclusive to being Anglican, there are ways that the Anglican tradition has taken these on and practices these, that they're not accessories kind of on the margins of our Christian life as kind of optional things we can pick up if, you know, kind of if they work for us, but they're, they're kind of front and center as, as tools of discipleship and kind of primary ways that this is just kind of what we do as part of our culture, as, as a church and as a wide body. Um, are ways that we kind of prepare our hearts for encountering God. And these are the Christian calendar, weekly Eucharist, as we're going to do here in a little bit, and the daily office found in the Book of Common Prayer. The Christian calendar, um, all of us, we, we are discipled by the way that we mark time. Think about this, like, do you celebrate a birthday or a birthday of anybody in your family? Do you celebrate anniversaries? How about the 4th of July? or the Super Bowl and the Final Four and the NBA Finals and the World Series, or back-to-school sales. Do you shop those? Like, we, are, our, we live our life by these calendars, right? And we are discipled by our calendars, too. So what would it look like? What would it mean to us to intentionally and strategically order time by the story of salvation? So we have, we have this movement of Advent and Christmas and Epiphany, to tell the story of Jesus, of how in the beginning there was darkness, and God said, let there be light, and God put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And so we spend a couple of months dwelling in that story and in that mystery of incarnation. There is no other religion or philosophy in the world that says that the gods became human beings. Like, this is a wholly unique Christian thing. And so we tell that story, and we follow Jesus into the world as a little baby, into the manger. And then we end an epiphany of, like, it's the light to the whole world, to everybody. Like, this is the story of God. And then we have this rhythm of, of Lent and Easter and Pentecost that tell the story of the sin and death that is in the world and Jesus descending, of Jesus walking with the cross, taking on the sin and the pain and the suffering of all the world. There is a God who knows our pain. There's a God who knows how deep and evil the corruption of the world is and has taken that on. And it is not the final word that Easter, all of that stuff unravels through the resurrection and the new life that Jesus brings and the new creation that breaks out as a result that leads to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment of God's church to continue on that work of Jesus in the world, of making all things new. And then we go into, that's just half the, the year right there. Then we go into ordinary time. And there's absolutely nothing ordinary about ordinary time because this, this is where we get to participate and we get to continue on as the church the work of Jesus in the world. So we have this calendar that like, gives us this rhythm of time of how God is working us. Because we need reminders every year of like, oh, it's Lent. Like, yes, the world is falling apart. God sees that, and God is doing something about that. It's not about just giving up some random luxury for, for 40 days. It's like identifying with the world that is hurting, and we enter, enter into that pain because we know that Jesus has the final word. So the calendar is, is one means of encountering God. A, a second one is, is weekly Eucharist, which Eucharist is just this fancy Greek word that means Thanksgiving. Think about Thanksgiving every year and how what an awesome family reunion for some people, it can be, with the food and the conversation and just the 
yeah, that gratitude that, that springs out of us of like, yeah, it was a good year, and we have everything that we need. This is, this is what this weekly ritual and this sacrament of the body and blood of Jesus means to us. When we look throughout Scripture, there are so many places that talk about eating and feasting and partying. Like, this is the picture that Jesus paints of this. This is the Passover meal that God establishes in Exodus that now finds its fulfillment in the mystery of Jesus. Of Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ is coming again. Anybody have a mom that would tell you you are what you eat? She was talking about communion. She was a theologian. <laughs> we are the body of Christ when we take in this bread and this juice and we digest it, it becomes who, we become the story. And so that's something we do, that's a pattern and a rhythm every single week. I've heard so many stories from people that had like life-changing conversion experiences having communion. Like it wasn't just going through the motions of, well, this is what we do at church. Um, it, they had a powerful encounter with God uh, when, they, when they came forward and, and received that table. I have a, a mentor who, uh, uh, who's a theologian and professor, and he talks about there's really three tables at work here. There's this table, and it reminds us that there's a center to the universe, and it's not us. This is God's table, where God is the host, and we, we are guests at his table where we receive. And because we are participating in this table, we can go out into our world, maybe it's our house, uh, and, and we have a table where we are the host, and others are the guests. Maybe it's believers, maybe it's believer, unbelievers in our neighborhood, but we gather in the name of Jesus, and we tell stories of Jesus, and we are witnesses of what the kingdom of God looks like in our communities. But then there's a third table out in the world where the world is the host, and we are the guest. So maybe that's McDonald's. Maybe it's the break room at your job. But it's a, it's a place where we attend to the presence of God in the world. And because we, can, because we participate in each three of these tables, they, they tune us and tune our hearts to how we see God's presence. It's because we see God's presence in this, in this table, that we can see God's presence out in the world around us and draw people to it. So these are three tools, I think, for helping us encounter God. Oh, I skipped, I skipped one, the, the best one, the daily one, the daily office. Now, office, that just comes from like the Latin about work, which came from the old monastics who, who had the saying about prayer is our work and work is our prayer. So the daily office is, is a daily rhythm of prayer and using scripture as a means of prayer. Now, I first discovered this um, when I had completely shipwrecked my faith, and I had grown up in an evangelical and then charismatic settings where, like, prayer was just off the top of your head and manufacturing something really emotional in the moment, you know, and, and, if, and it was almost like trying to find some spiritual dopamine hit every time I had a quiet time. And if I didn't, if I didn't get that, then I needed to, to buckle down and try harder. Or maybe it was, there was some unconfessed sin that I wasn't bringing to God. And, you know, I just, I just needed to, to try hard. Maybe get up earlier. Anybody have that experience? Yeah? Well, I had a friend that introduced this. It was a ca actually a Catholic prayer book. And I had never seen anything like this before. I was in my mid-20s. And basically, it was just the book of Psalms. And so I knew, like, okay, well, this is scripture. I can trust this. This is really good words about God and true. 
And, and because it's the Psalms, it's, it's beautiful poetry. So these are beautiful words about God. And there's a rhythm and a structure to it. Like, I don't have to manufacture anything or, like, try to make anything happen or come up with something. Like, what am I going to read today? It, it's just there, and I just enter into it, almost like stepping into a river. And then that's enough. I can close the book. And that, that's, like, that's enough to be with God. And I found it to be such a gift in that season of life where I, had, I didn't know how to pray anymore. I, and I, but this was something that like started to retrain my muscles of how to pray, to do this in the morning and in the evening, in the morning and in the evening. And it goes back to this idea in Leviticus that the community made daily sacrifices to God in the morning and in the evening. And in fact, later on, a psalmist says, I praise you seven times a day. So at a certain point in history, uh, monks and monasteries developed like seven points throughout the day to, to pray the Psalter. Um, and so then in the 16th century, Robert Cranmer, who was the theologian behind the English Reformation, developed this prayer book for normal everyday Christians. Because like many others in the Reformations, uh, the church had gotten so caught up in just dealing with clergy and with experts, and that religion was just for the experts and had completely forgotten about normal people, that Cranmer wanted to provide a resource of discipleship to teach people how to pray, peasants, farmers, blacksmiths, just normal, everyday folks. So you can find this, this guidebook for prayer. It's at the very beginning of the, the Book of Common Prayer, or you can find it on, online at dailyoffice2019.com, and it just, like, each day or each hour of the day, it has, like, the appropriate prayers for that time. Or there's an app, Daily Office, if you find that in your app store, and pull that up. You can use that as just a daily rhythm. And you just have to enter in. And that's enough. That's all you have to do. And it shapes you, almost like putting grooves in you every time you come to it. And that's enough. So there's three ways. Last thing I want to I talk about, since we talked about a God who encounters, and we talked about stories and rhythms, last thing I want to talk about is places. Because I think that physical spaces and places of encounter are really important to us because there is something about places that, that shape us on a, even a, a subconscious level. Like to have a space that's, whether you yourself or somebody else did this for you, like intentionally crafted a space for you to meet with God. I mean, John, how many people are involved in making this worship service happen today? A lot, yeah. So that you could encounter God this morning. Um, like, there's something about a sanctuary, isn't there? Um, and, and yes, it's very much true that God is present in all of creation. And yes, you can meet God as you, like, take a walk or in the mountains. Um, but there's also something about a tangible space that's created for you to meet with God. Well, so I've been doing this work of spiritual direction for probably about five years now. And, and what that means is that I help people listen to God. And I help people attend to the presence of the Holy Spirit in them so that they can have eyes to see it in the world around them. And one thing I found is that um, we, need, we all need help. We all need a guide. We, I remember several years ago when I was doing college ministry, I, I went to go see a soccer game because I had students that played soccer. I, have, I know nothing about soccer. Me and I love Ted, Ted Lasso. Like, I love that show because I so relate. I know nothing about soccer, even though I've nearly finished the, the series. But 
But I, I went with a friend who would have been a, a so college soccer coach if he hadn't gone into ministry. And so we're sitting there, and I, if, to me, it's just people kicking a ball around. But he's like starting to, uh, to point out to me, hey, that's, there's a, that's, this is the pattern that's going on now. This is the strategy they're doing. This is the positions these people are playing. And so, you know, by about, by about the time the, the match is over, I'm, I'm starting to like catch what's going on. It's, I can see something. And I think there's something to that to our spiritual lives, too, is that we oftentimes, there's a, life is happening in front of us. God is at work in front of us. Sometimes we miss it. We just don't have eyes to see it, and we need somebody standing with us and making space with us in our story to kind of help us see these patterns as they are in front of us. So I, I started doing this work of spiritual direction that, that I found I really, really loved. And then maybe about a year ago, my, my neighbor across the street, he uh, was building a new house on this adjacent lot, and we got to talking about, hey, what are you going to do with your old house? And he was like, I don't know. You got any good ideas? I said, yes. Yes, I do. I said, what, what if we made it a space for retreats? Where pe- we could rent out the bedrooms. People could stay, come for like half a day, a whole day, overnight, a whole week if they needed to, to find rest and quiet and stillness and solitude. I mean, I had, I had spent 10 years in ministry looking for spaces in the area where I could go do that, whether it was for a day or for a weekend. And I'm like, yeah, there's a couple available, but nothing really fit, nothing that I really liked. And so I thought, can we do this with your house? And he was like, that's brilliant. When do you want us to move out? And I thought, okay. We're really doing this. So this is a house on the north end of downtown. And um, yeah, I've got, so April 1st, this is the day that we've drawn up an agreement that I can move in and start setting things up so that hopefully by the end of April, beginning of May, we can start hosting people. Um, and we can host get, or even groups on the first floor for the day of like, 10 to 20 folks, if like a staff wanted to come and do some team building, or if a small group wanted to do a little workshop or retreat together, they could do that. And then we've got four bedrooms on the second floor, and there's uh, a big wraparound front porch and a landscaped backyard and patio, like just so many nooks and crannies where you can pray and be quiet and be still and be with God. So starting new things doesn't come super cheap. We, um, we, have a, we kind of eyeballed a budget of about $20,000 to, to furnish a four-bedroom house. And um, because we wanted to do it well, we didn't want just like thrift store furniture and hand-me-downs. We, we wanted to provide hospitality in such a way that is warm and inviting and clean and simple and just a beautiful environment. And so that is what we're working with and working on. We were kind of brainstorming, like, well, where do we where can we find $20,000? Because that doesn't just grow on trees. You know, it's not like Animal Crossing and we can just dig it up out of the ground. Um, so um, we started thinking about, well, I could get a, a small business loan. Still may if, if we need to do that. But like paying a bank with interest, like that just does not excite me at all. Or I could go fundraise, but that has never been in my wheelhouse either. That doesn't sound fun. And then we got bouncing around this idea of, of, a, of a CSA business model. Have any of you supported a farm that had this community-supported agriculture model? 
So it's, it's where you, you pay up front for your produce for the year, and that way the farmer has all the capital he needs for the growing season, and then week by week, you just get the fresh produce of each week, and you've already paid for it. And so we thought, well, what if we did something like that? And we offered, I've, I can set up gift cards on this website, and people can buy those, and then whether it's two months from now, three months from now, a year from now, they can, they can use that as, as a, to save for their retreat, and that's how we can raise the money that we need. So that's what I have on my website. If you go to thesabbathlife.com and click on retreats, um, you can find out all about how you could participate in that if you so wanted to. If you know, if, if you know a pastor that needs a retreat and a break, uh, if you know somebody that works on staff at a church, or maybe your kid's school teacher, or a healthcare worker, or a counselor or therapist, do you, do you know how many people right now um, need to be taken care of? Who've been taking care of people for the last year, and even far and beyond the last year, too. But how many people are, are tired and need, need a break and need somebody to take care of them? Um, so you could buy a gift card for yourself. You can buy a gift card for somebody else. You can donate to a fund so that we can provide retreats for people that might otherwise not be able to afford it. It's either discount or scholarship for them. So, uh, so, so far, um, as of today, I'm still looking for about $15,000. But can I tell you something? Like, I'm not losing any sleep over it. I know how faithful God is. I know that every step of the way has opened up to this point. It's like, well, of course God wants this to happen. This is, this is going to happen one way or another. He's going to surprise us in some really good way. Whether it's it all falling you know, out of the sky all in one shot, or it's discovering that we already have everything we need. God, God gives us everything we need right when we need it. I mean, I've had people contribute already from Kansas City, from New Orleans, from Lexington. I got my first donation from somebody I don't know last week, and it was a missionary in Indonesia that I guess has Tulsa connections and heard about it through a friend of a friend. I even, the very first conversation I had about this, maybe back in October, led to or referred me to a church planter who was looking for a place that their, their group could meet um, after Easter, and they, had, they were sitting on a financial gift that they could pay for an entire a year-long lease up front for a year. And so that has led to conversations. Like, I know that God is good. I know that God provides. And I know that God is up to some really special things uh, here in Tulsa and here among us. So encounters with God. There's a God who wants to encounter us. We need to share our stories of encounter. We have some tools at our disposal. And there are places where we can go to encounter God. And as we get ready for communion here, I want to share a story of Jesus. Because stories about Jesus are so good. And it's, what's happened, this is in, in Matthew chapter 8, and it's, it's early in the Jesus story, in Matthew, as the way Matthew tells it. And a Roman centurion of all people comes and begs Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus is just surprised. Can you imagine Jesus surprised? He's just in awe of the audacity of this Roman centurion to ask for help. And he turns to his disciples, Jesus does. And I, the text doesn't say that, but I imagine he's kind of pointing at the Roman centurion. And he says that many, I imagine like many like this guy, this Gentile, this outsider, 
And he might even be thinking about you and me when he does this. Many will come from east and from west and will take their places at the feast. This feast. With Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So this God, the living, almighty God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he wants to encounter you. He wants to encounter all of us with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And how cool is that? Let's pray. Almighty God, you are so incredible. Help us. Help us to see you. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear how you are at work so that we can run with abandon with the simplicity of Isaac and say yes to you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.